Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Five levels of autism in 20 seconds. Five levels, did he say? Five levels. All right. Okay, so level, all right, let's plan this out. Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. We integrate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussions with guests who have knowledge and lived experiences on the topic at hand. I am Tribe, DJ, radio host, and music editor at Third. I am Rona, stylist, creative director, and founder of Third. And I'm Daniela. I'm a writer, musician, and producer. In this episode, we'll be discussing neurodiversity, a buzzword that has increasingly come to cover conditions such as ADHD, autism, and dyslexia. We want to explore what it means to be neurodivergent and look at how it shapes the way people move through the world, creativity, mental health, and more. We will be delving into the personal experiences and speaking to experts to get a better understanding of what it means to be neurodivergent. Talking to us about some of these issues are Tyler Grant and Timmy Satire, both who are neuro-minority advocates. Tyler Grant creates content to challenge the preconceptions of autistic adults and empower them to self-advocate. Diagnosed autistic at 17 off the back of a mental health crisis, Tyler aims to support other black people who are part of a neuro-minority group in their personal development. Tumi Satire is the founder of the Black Dyspraxic, which explores the intersectionality of race and neurodiversity. Tumi is also a researcher in dyslexia at the University of Lancaster. Before we get right into the show, we just wanted to remind all of our lovely listeners that this show now exists in two formats. If you are listening on Soho Radio or Mixcloud right now, you can look forward to a selection of music from and influenced by cultural diasporas and a high-energy mix at the end of the show. And if you're listening on a podcast platform, you can enjoy listening to our voices offline and follow our show on Spotify, iTunes, Pocket Cast, or wherever suits you best. Thank you to all of our listeners who fed back to us and helped this new format come into being. This track is called Autism Wave by Coaster. So Tribe, why did you want to lead on this episode for today then? Yeah, sure. It's been about a year and a half since I got my own diagnosis. That year and a half has been a journey, a good journey. It's been a journey to kind of discover myself and what that means to me. And I have learned a lot about the way that I think and what it means to have ADHD, dyslexia and dyspraxia. And I still feel like there's a lot to learn. I kind of wanted to turn that around and and talk about it amongst ourselves, but also to kind of spread more awareness. I wanted to use this episode as a way to explore further this whole idea, but also to talk about my own experiences and connect with others who have been on their own journeys regarding their own diagnosis. You know, 
like third as a platform is always trying to put a light on areas of diversity which are quite neglected it goes like untalked about a lot of the time when we talk about diversity and also just from personal experience too I would say that you know the diagnosis of conditions can sometimes happen quite late in life so people who have had ADHD or dyslexia or dyspraxia and stuff it's not that uncommon to hear about them only understanding that aspect of themselves as mature adults and I guess I'm someone who can speak to that too. I would say I mean to be very honest with you this is another reason for why I think this episode is so useful just because I don't think I really understood what that diagnosis meant and I think that is one of the things I think this this episode can do some good with is like sharing the knowledge to some diverse conditions. I don't think you're taught in school like what ADHD is or what dyslexia is or what the symptoms are. You know, I think I only really came in contact with the term neurodiversity maybe like a year or two ago. And I didn't quite fully understand it. And yeah, I think it's not really something that is talked about widely or even shown very often in culture on TV or anything like that. So a lot of people have misconceptions about it. And I think this episode is a really good opportunity to sort of like dispel some of those that's so interesting because Rona you you also have a diagnosis right that you got at university which is quite late on Mm, yeah totally I was like someone who was diagnosed with dyslexia quite late and to be honest I have quite mild dyslexia so if I'm being very honest when I was diagnosed I will never forget like almost just not believing the woman who told me this <laughs> I was like what do you mean I can like read completely fluidly but yet again that that sort of just goes back to what I was saying about misconceptions that people have and understanding it a lot more has also been great for me and being able to almost understand how it actually relates to me um because these things are so individual I'd say yeah, I bet you were like, um, excuse me, I'm a literature graduate. What are you talking about? <laughs> I was like, yeah, pretty much, to be very honest with you. <laughs> yeah, so interesting to hear your, your perspectives on this. I guess for me, it comes from like sort of an interest that I've had since my master's, which was in philosophy of mental disorder. And on that course, it was sort of like combined, like, you know, the School of Philosophy and the School of Psychiatry. We would have lectures from kind of both these departments. And and we interrogated a lot into the sort of the grey areas of what is actually considered a mental disorder. If you use the word disorder, then you are saying there is an order. And how do you even define that? Because that was one of the things I kind of like struggled with when I was even just trying to understand them. Sometimes people say they're like disorders. Sometimes people say they're disabilities, like they're learning disabilities and all these different things. And a lot of it kind of comes with quite negative stigma. These are just different ways of being. They don't always necessarily have to be like disorders as in something that has gone wrong. That's it, now on the head. So it's kind of like what you were saying, Rona, kind of moving away from this idea of there is something wrong with that person and having a better understanding that it's just a a difference in the way that we are we all have differences in the way that we think um and it affects us differently yeah so so also this term neurodiversity is is in as much a description of the fact that there is a divergence um of how people's brains work differently some more 
differently than others in different ways? Because obviously you can have within one category of a condition, like like dyslexia, you you have people who show their dyslexia to a a very different degrees. And the way that they describe it is that it's not like a, a linear spectrum, but more of a spectrum wheel in which people have varying traits that would lend itself to being considered autistic or having ADHD. From that understanding, we move away from saying someone is highly autistic or mildly autistic or low, you know, low on the autism, but having a better understanding that there's certain traits that um, come into play when they move through the world. I also agree with you there as well that we should have a better understanding that some of these conditions aren't negative. For me personally, I would say that my ADHD is what fuels my DJing. You know, my short attention span when it comes to good music and wanting to hear the next track, you know, it's like I'll just mix in the next thing. And my curiosity to explore genres and sounds and stuff like that, that's all fueled by my ADHD. So it lends itself to positive qualities as well. Is there anything else that you sort of discovered in your journey of of having had a diagnosis? Because obviously that's been quite recent and you kind of got three diagnoses in one. I just wonder if you feel comfortable talking a little bit more about sort of your dyslexia and your dyspraxia and whether, you know, since having a diagnosis, you've come to terms with some things in your past or anything like that. Okay, so I'll start from maybe like primary school or nursery where I remember there was a particular moment where um, I sat my first exam and like the teacher just suddenly sprang on us that today kids were going to be doing what they call an exam or assessment and you're all going to sit in silence and we're going to you're going to be answering questions in a paper. I remember just kind of being completely baffled like 10 minutes later when everyone was just sitting so dead quiet and had their heads in this you know booklet answering questions And I tried for a couple of seconds and I was like, I'm going to go over there to that display cabinet where they have uh, dinosaurs and I'm going to play with it. So in the middle of the class where it was like completely quiet and everyone's head was stuck in the books, I just got up and started playing with toy dinosaurs. And I remember that being fed back to my mum on parents' evening. And my mum just turned around being like, what? Like, what What was your, why? And moments like that kind of continued throughout my life in secondary school, where I would be in low classes for like French or maths, because for example, remembering processes, like in maths, where it's like, you've got to remember what steps to take to get an answer. I always found difficult, like I would understand it immediately. But then when it came down to me doing it myself, I just couldn't remember the process. But then when it came to like English and other topics like that, I'll be in the top class. So I was always very extreme with my capabilities. So I would be able to answer questions. But then when you look in my exercise book and what I've actually written, it wouldn't represent what I knew. And I've always been clumsy as well in terms of like um, spilling things, you know, tripping over things, like especially in my teens. And so that was always at the back of my head, but I didn't really think about it too tough. Um, And I think it all came to head when I hit my 20s, when you come out of the education system and you're looking for a job. And I think the biggest thing that I struggled with was applications where you would make small mistakes. Uh, Sometimes I'd read over a cover letter that I would have written and I'd notice that I spelled 
you know, madam wrong or some kind of sentence structure was completely off. Um, even though I'd spent ages writing it. And you, you know that, like, once it gets to the person who's meant to be reading it, as soon as they notice that, okay, clearly they didn't really take their time doing it. And that's it. We're built in a society where mistakes are considered a flaw in yourself. You know, you made that mistake. So if someone who is wired to be clumsy in some way or to say the wrong things or to write the wrong things, how do you navigate the world in those conditions? Because you start to internalise all those mistakes as things you do. You know, you're not trying hard enough. You're the reason why certain things happen like that. For example, I landed my dream job working at a label. I really struggled with that because a lot of it was spreadsheets and I would like copy and paste things into the wrong square and things like that. And I'd have the manager come out in front of everyone and kind of shout at me, kind of going, why did you send it out to everyone like this? And I think it got to a point where I really did feel like I just don't know what's wrong, but something's wrong. But then it must have eroded my away at my sense of self and confidence. So I was like, I'm going to do a GDL, which is like a law diploma. Like I'm going to exercise this brain that I know I have and I'm going to have a certificate for it. And I enrolled myself onto this course and I struggled. Like, again, I understood the concepts, but remembering the cases was a real struggle for me. And that was part of my, I, when I got my diagnosis, it's, it's my memory that it is the thing that's quite difficult. So I found that I struggled quite a bit. And by, I guess, halfway through the course, I kind of completely burnt out. Like I handed in an amazing essay, got a really high grade. And then as soon as I handed in that essay, I was completely burnt out. And I was putting in so much effort. And it, it was difficult because I, I kind of stopped believing in myself. I just didn't know what was up. And luckily, this university had this thing where you could go to an educational psychologist and see if you have this condition. And I remember the first preliminary test that I had within the university, the guy was like, oh, no, you're fine. You're fine. It seemed, there's a couple of abnormalities, but you seem fine. But then when I went to the educational psychologist, I was thinking, OK, maybe I might have dyslexia. And after like a couple of hours in the session, he was like, yeah, you definitely have dyslexia, but you also have dyspraxia and you also have ADHD. And it was a bombshell. I wasn't expecting it. And it felt like a Scooby-Doo moment. Do you know when Fred removes the mask and everyone's like, oh, it's so-and-so. And it's like, oh, that's what I've been fighting this whole time. Wow, that must have been both like a really revelatory, like on the one hand, we're just like, oh, finally, I feel like now I understand what's going on. I can try to like figure this out. On the other hand, a bit like, oh, what the fuck? Like now yeah totally I would obviously it it would have but I think a lot of what you're saying is highlighting just how important it is that other people understand yeah yeah and that's it the the spreading of awareness as you mentioned earlier Rona it's considered uh, educational learning kind of disability something that would affect people in the classroom and what I've kind of reflected upon and realized actually it affects positively and negatively various aspects of one's life it's not just in the classroom as as I said in fact for me it became more apparent when I came out of the educational system 
Yeah, that was the thing I was going to pick up on, that it feels like the word that you hear most often associated with things like autism or ADHD is like kids or learning disabilities or giving special support to kids who has these learning disabilities when you don't really hear about people talking about it, about adults. And it's like a massive drop off in terms of both like society understanding and and clearly by the sounds of your experience, sort of an understanding around the the issue. That's it. That's part of the journey. At first you're like, oh, that's what it is. Okay. It's a shock, but okay. But then when you start to understand how, I guess, it does affect you and when you start to read into actually what it means, um, you go through a mourning because you start to realize those moments that were missed I remember there was a time where I was uh, I was working uh, as a DJ in a cruise ship and we had to fill out these little boxes to say what hours we worked it was important to know because you don't want to work too many hours in case there's an accident on a cruise ship and you need to know like if someone's overworked if that makes sense it's a health and safety thing and I would have to fill out these boxes after my set in the middle of the night and um or and then if you've missed out bits like you know if you've made a mistake you would have to do it again so what would happen is at the end of the month I'll get called in by my manager and she'd be like look you worked this day but you've put an x here you've made a mistake so you're gonna have to do this you have to do it again um just fill it all out again and you know send give it back to me and I remember having to like stay up late at night like redoing like taking like four or five sheets filling out these X's because I kept making mistakes and not being able to go to sleep until I've got it right. And it's just like, you know, you don't know why you're making these mistakes and you're beating yourself up each time. And they're seeing you as just being lazy and and not putting in any effort. And I think when you start to reflect on moments like that, you do kind of, yeah, you mourn it. You mourn yourself. And I think when you start to realise how some of those things about yourself wasn't you, but actually your condition, I think it it also, in its own way, took a toll on my self-esteem as well. Yeah, that's really interesting you describe it like that. You know, obviously, I've also been diagnosed only with dyslexia, but I would say my experience was quite different in that I'll never forget, like, when I went to the educational therapist, um... And she gave my diagnosis. I almost felt like it was a, like a a trick because she was very like, she didn't really explain the condition. And she was very like, yeah, you have, you know, she stressed the mild aspect of it with very little explanation. So the understanding was that I would just know like how dyslexia affects people. And it would also make sense to me as a person. And, and it very much didn't. So I, I will never forget almost just feeling like, I feel like this woman thinks I've come here just to get um, a laptop or something. But I almost wish I had had someone who had helped me make sense of it to myself as opposed to like this diagnosis and then you go out and you don't quite understand it. And I think that like a lot of what Daniela said about like the emphasis we put on it being a condition that children have as opposed to ones that like adults live with. It would have been amazing if, like, say that lady who diagnosed me, if she had said one of the symptoms is you might pronounce words funnily. Because for me, that's something that I do all the time. But like, like the official diagnosis for dyslexia, it's a reading disability. And that I, w- I wouldn't say I'm affected in that way. So I think it's also very important to 
remember that words also stand for spectrums in themselves. And so the way someone outputs their dyslexia or their dyspraxia or autism might be very different from the way another person does that. But, but it's having that awareness that gives you an ability to be able to navigate. There are so many different symptoms that you can show from like one condition and you might not have all the symptoms, but you might struggle more from some. And I think because mine weren't really going to affect my ability academically or to write or to read, it was almost seen that it wasn't like that much of an issue, but it would have been quite useful for me as a person just to understand these things. Because I think what can happen is that you do sometimes do what you were talking about, where you go like, you know, you doubt your ability at things and you think to yourself, oh, why, why am I making these mistakes? It doesn't make any sense or, you know. So I think sometimes because these people are seeing things and they're trying to help you on, you know, a professional or a academic level, they're not realising the impact that some of the support can have on a personal level for someone. A lot of self-education has to come into these things because the, the amount of support out there is, it is just not sort of enough. Would you agree? Yeah, but I also think that self-education needs to come up at a society level, you know? I Like, I think it should be about, like, I don't think I have ADHD, but if I understand ADHD, then I can be a better human being or a better, like, person, organiser, support, you know, friend to a friend who does have that condition because I have the understanding to, about it. So I think... I know a lot of self-education comes in for people who personally have these conditions and that's just natural. But what we're almost missing is the one that needs to happen on the level of society in general. I have a story about that as well, actually. So I think I referred to a while back in one of the episodes, um, I had been doing this uh, law course and it was a dodgy one because they had stopped doing live lectures and live lectures and actual interactions with you know the lecturers is how I absorb information through like listening so they don't they didn't do this on the course and we were the first year for them to test this new way out so I wasn't basically learning as much as I would normally learn in a university setting and anyway so I found the exams very stressful a day after the exams I was hanging out with someone from my university you know actual first bachelor degree days I was still stressed. My brain was still fighting that fire <laughs> from from the exams, the two weeks of exams where I weren't sleeping properly. I no longer believed in myself to actually do the revision. And I was like mentally like burnt out, as I said. And I just remember like being there, hanging out with this person and completely having no self-esteem. Like there's a thing in, with ADHD where they call it like rejection sensitivity. So in my head, I was rejecting myself. Like, I just was like, yeah, no, this is not a situation. And I, and I just remember, like, tripping over things. All of my various aspects of my ADHD and dyspraxia had, like, for some reason, been amped up to 100 under the stressful kind of conditions. And so I was also, like, blurting things out. I remember, like, we were hanging out and we were meant to be juggling as well. And I just remember, like, not even being able to, like, throw one ball up in the air properly and then the more I was horrified by how I was acting the more I would just spiral out of like confusion so being even more stressed and I'll never forget that because it felt like I was in the back seat of my own self and that was actually a turning point for me because I was just like okay clearly 
I have to come to terms with my conditions and understand what it means to me and learn to love it and to come to a place where I'm at least with, at peace with it. At the very least, because it does help my condition. Stress doesn't help. And it was a moment where I kind of turned around and was just like, yo, you know, like I had a kind of pet book for myself. Like that can't happen again. Also, also you're like, yo, why are we juggling? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not that bad at juggling and and normally, but I think under like the previous stress conditions of like doing exams and then the next day hanging out with someone you really like, I think all of that like culminated into a moment where I was just like, I really didn't feel myself. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to kind of pick up on, which is the when you were talking about sort of having to like fill out these little boxes of like how many hours you had worked on the cruise ship after a night of DJing and also, you know, the the course you were doing where they went from having a mixture of like reading and writing material to lectures and interacting with people to purely like written based, um, etc. I mean, there's there's many examples in both of your stories, but if you take a step back and look at history and how society is structured, um, it's, it can almost be like, well, it's by chance that the school education methodology is the way it is. Like the mainstream school system is the way it is that you write, you write your exams, you read in textbooks. And, and it's almost like, Ronel, you were talking about sort of on a society level, think like self-education on a society level to help each other, support each other and learn know more about how people kind of tick and how people work. It's almost like there needs to be on another level, a societal reflection of systems of how things or like design. Yeah, I will also say it's quite an interesting moment to even be talking about like, you know, this this question of design as well, just because like we've seen that through lockdown that are di- they are different ways of working i don't know if you guys saw on twitter but there was this post that was posted at the very beginning of lockdown where this um girl who had disability i think she was actually i'm not going to guess it because i'm probably going to get it wrong but uh, I, I believe she was a wheelchair user and she didn't for a little while she was asking her university if she could basically do her course from home because like you know that's what she just needed her body needed for that period of time to be able to complete her course and she was rejected for it and she was like you know two months later we were all in lockdown and it was completely okay for us all to work from from home using computer screens and and etc which they obviously had told her before was completely you just wouldn't happen and there was no way they could do it so I think we're at this moment where hopefully we're starting to open up to the fact that we can tailor and cater things a bit more for like different people in society as opposed to it's like one one you know one rule fits all yes that's it I I definitely agree with that and it's quite interesting how quickly they were able to adapt you know once the, the it was necessary for them in the pandemic but didn't really see the need for that one individual you know would actually benefit from those conditions I agree. And I think also we need to think outside even just the um, employment, all the various ways in which we interact and engage and exist in this world, having that flexibility to allow ourselves and others around us to exist in a way that works for them and the way that they 
you know, think and exist in the world. That flexibility should also kind of be embedded into the, our society. So I've been looking into the stats on the government website and things like that. And I think it would be really interesting to share some of these figures to paint a picture of the demographic within the UK. 6.3 million people, or around 10% of the UK population, is considered to have dyslexia. And this is according to the UK government website. These numbers vary. Some people approximate about 16% of the population. And about 4% of this population has uh, significant difficulties with reading and writing. And when it comes to autism, the numbers are a little bit different. It's 1.1% of the population. And that's about 695,000, according to the 2011 UK census. And when it comes to ADHD, that's 3 to 5% of children and 2% of adults. But again, all of these numbers should be caveated by the idea that a lot of people don't get diagnosed. And some people get diagnosed later on in life. So we don't really fully know how many people are out there, especially when it comes to women. Okay, so this track is called ADHD, and it's by a new artist called Clover the Girl. I stumbled across this track by accident, um, and I slightly like it, although I do think it is kind of uh, <laughs> a bit blamey. Um, you'll hear why. But yes, uh, Clover the Girl, ADHD. Day and night, in the moment, out of focus, out of line. Hi, Tyler. Thank you so much for, for joining us on this, this episode. Thank you for giving us your time. Just first of all, can you just tell us a bit about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name is Tyler. And I am a autumn advocate, I guess you'd say. I create content online, basically challenging the preconceptions around autistic adults. And I am a just a champion of autistic people living the life they want to lead. Do you mind telling us just a little bit, like going back a little bit in maybe personal history, do you mind telling us a bit about your um, diagnosis story and like how your condition affects your life and and also the people around you maybe yeah okay so I was diagnosed age 17 but before that I was what like seven told that I have anger management issues which looking back is actually hilarious because what's a seven-year-old got to be angry about then following on from that when I was about 13 when did you do GCSE like 13 16 around that time anyway we was at school and my grades just like tanked and like oh let's have a look into this turns out I'm dyslexic then when I left that school and went to college they were like mm, yeah you're still still something something a bit different about you and all through my childhood I'd always said like I don't feel like I've had friends don't feel like I fit in but because I was able to play with other kids and because I was like quite an intelligent child my traits weren't picked up I feel that they were attributed to other things and that's why I was told I had anger management issues I came from like a technically single parent household was like the only black kid in the class of like 28 other white kids but then when I went to a college that a college that was like truly diverse 
the form tutor was able to see that it wasn't my race that was the issue it wasn't any other factor it was the fact that I myself am different like deep down so I'm autistic and I was going through like a really bad time with my mental health I was quite erratic like one day I'd come in I'd be perfectly fine the next day I'd come in and she'd be like I actually can't talk to you today sent me off for a mental health assessment and it was there that they picked up that I'm autistic Wow, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting that you speak about almost like this delay in the diagnosis. Earlier on in the show, Tribe and Rona, they kind of shared their story about basically late diagnosis because Rona was diagnosed as having dyslexia in university and, you know, Tribe, you know, in the last year, was it? We kind of talked about this, like almost like this light bulb moment of getting the diagnosis and being like, on the one hand, sort of maybe angry or mourning mourning the past in a way, but also another hand being like feeling empowered that now there's a way to describe it. So I just wonder if you could speak a little bit to that, perhaps. Yeah, so that's quite a common experience, but it's not the one that I had. When I went for the assessment, it was to keep me in college. And I'd already like applied for university. I think I had hopes and dreams of, I don't know why, looking back why I wanted to go to uni. But um, yeah, that was always my plan. It was like college, uni, um, grad job. And my college were threatening to kick me out because of my behaviour. My work was there, but I just wasn't playing the game properly. And they're like, it's more hassle than it's worth. If you don't fix up, then you're out. I was like, all right, okay then. Went for the assessment and the relief I got from it was like, okay, great. I can stay in college and stick to like the plan I had at the time. It didn't really receive any post-diagnosis support. And I didn't really like engage in the community at that point. It was just like a kind of get out of jail free card to keep me in college and stick to my plan for further education. That's interesting because I feel like one of the things that we keep talking about is like how there's a almost like a misunderstanding of these conditions being learning disabilities only mm-hmm. and that the support really drops off after the school age yeah. whereas it sounds like from your experience that even you were still in school age you know, technically a sixth form, yeah. but yet there still wasn't the kind of support that you needed. And I wonder if you could share anything about that difference between like secondary school. Yeah. So in terms of support, even when I was got my dyslexia diagnosis, like there wasn't really anything other than how do we get you to pass your exams? And I think that was very because of the schools I was in. They were very focused on how they appeared in league tables and you were just a number to them. And even the teachers knew it. They didn't really care that much about your well-being. The The extent to what they cared is the extent to which it impacted your grades. And that's the only way and reason I think I got my dyslexia diagnosis because my autistic traits weren't affecting my grades. They were just affecting my well-being and how I was interacting with teachers. And to fix that, they can just put me on detention. So in terms of support and my age, the issue that I faced was because I wasn't at absolute crisis point to the point where I was in in like a mental health hospital or like an inpatient I think that's the right word and my age I was like in between adult and child services being 17 like really the child and adolescent mental health service kind of could have pushed me over to the adult services but also knew that like if they did I wasn't going to get seen to they diagnosed me and just left it at that I did a couple of counseling sessions because I was depressed at the time then there was like issues at home because of my age I needed to be picked up after my sessions and then both my parents worked full-time and it was just for them more hassle than it was worth because like I said I just needed to stay in college we'd done what I needed to do to keep my place at college there wasn't really any support for the autism but the depression they did a couple of CBT sessions and that was it from what you said there's quite a few points to be raised from that one the education system I can speak to my own experience that in class 
one of the things that kept reoccurring on my report notes would be that I talk too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that whole idea about when a, a young person is not fitting into the expectations of what a student is meant to be, which is a problem in itself because there's a, I guess there's a general stereotype what a student should be like to the extent that they were willing to kick you out if there wasn't an explanation. Another point that kind of comes to my mind as well is the fact that for a lot of people, especially if your parents are working and have other pressures, that, you know, as long as their kid's in school and, you know, hitting all the milestones that is necessary, there's not necessarily the capacity or room to ensure that there were other sides of such as well-being is facilitated. My question to you would be like the intersectionalities of your background and how that overlaps with your experience and getting the diagnosis as a autistic person and moving through the world. Did you find that there were any barriers? Um, I feel like only now am I realising what the barriers are. Like if I did want to go and get help, like it's not culturally appropriate at all. And the way looking back, autism was described to my parents and the information that was given to them it wasn't not worded correctly but it wasn't appropriate for people of my background like I'm so I'm Caribbean family's from Jamaica and it's just we're only just discussing mental health just now like to then tell um, parents who really like want their child to succeed that they have a difference that's perceived to hold them back that they just don't want to hear it so when I was diagnosed with dyslexia I remember the only way I could spin it to my mum is that oh yeah it means I get extra time in exams and so then I can do even better than I do now. And when I go to uni, I'll be able to get like a free laptop and stuff like that. It's only because I was able to spin it like that, that they were willing to hear it. And if I didn't, then it just wouldn't have been a thing. Like, And the thing is being autistic, that it's the small things that were constantly causing tension and arguments at home. Like I am, um, no one's naturally messy. Okay. But it's, a bit more of a challenge for me to keep on top of tidying up because washing up isn't just one task for me it's broken down into all its little bits and things have to be done in the right order and like it's more complicated than it appears on the surface and I think there's this expectation and pressure on black people to always present well because we're already thought worse of and you have to look put together and all these things but then when you combine that with being autistic like sometimes it's a struggle for me to brush my teeth if I can't deal with the sense of like my toothbrush that day or like the feel of the water on my skin like makes me feel physically sick like there are little things and if you don't have parents that can help you deal with workarounds for that especially when you're growing up everything's just an argument and a challenge and then for me it resulted in me like moving house a lot um when I was like 16 to 18 I was just moving around family members to see who could like keep me for the longest and put up with me and then it was like okay now you need to go on to the next one now because I've had enough and when you're trying to do well at college being autistic not being able to deal with change that well um it's hard I've watched some of your videos on YouTube and at times you talk about sort of myths that come around what autism is or myths about people who have autism I wonder if if you could speak to us a little bit about what some of the myths that are like most grating to you or, or that you think is like most prevalent out there? So I think the two that's like springing to mind immediately. So the one is like, oh, you don't look autistic. And it's like, well, how, how am I supposed to look? Because you can't see my brain. So like, what, what am I supposed to look like? 
And I was in conversation with this, I guess you'd call her a TikTok star called Paige. And she was saying that her experience has been a lot of people seem to misunderstand autism and think it's Down syndrome. And it's just not. It's a completely different disability. So there is no look to autism. It presents in many different ways. For me to even say, oh, I'm not a typical autistic person, like that's a really stupid thing to say because like there is no such thing as a typical autistic person because it presents differently in every single person that has it. We just have common traits and like common attributes. And then another myth would be something along the lines of like, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. Oh, you must be like only a little bit autistic. And it's like, again, no, (laughs) you're either autistic or you're not. There will then be a difference in your, well, it's called support needs. But even then, like, that's just code for the drain you are on society because everyone has support needs in life in general, even a non-autistic person. Like some people can't get through the day without a coffee. I can't get through the day without having like the same breakfast in the morning. Like if I don't have my oats in the morning, my whole day is thrown off. And that's not because I need food in the morning. It's because like, that's how I start my days. And I, like, I, it's just, it's complicated to explain, but that's part of my routine and being autistic. I like routine dependent on them, can't function without them. They're just, oh, we're all a little bit autistic. Like, we're not. We're really not. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a really interesting thing and important thing to highlight because I think it is definitely problematic in that some of these words that are associated with various diagnoses are concepts like a spectrum. or And, and whilst these words have meaning in folk language... Um, it doesn't mean the same thing when it's associated with something like autism. And I think oftentimes you hear people say things like, oh, my God, I, my OCD is going to get triggered and they don't have OCD. And it's like, OK, you're trying to express something about maybe your tendencies towards wanting things tidy or whatnot. But you need to understand, like, having OCD is not the same as, like, wanting things tidy. And and I think that's maybe something that you are pointing to, like, the kind of problematic way that like people think spectrum means everyone is on the spectrum when that is not the case yeah so it's not a linear spectrum it's a circle one like once you're then on the spectrum you've got the traits in different directions which you may have more of the social difficulties you may be more sensitive to sounds you may have troubles with interoception like I find that in like common language when people tend to say oh I'm feeling really autistic today they just mean like they're having difficulties in social situations and maybe you're just a little bit socially anxious in that situation and that's not the same as autism anxiety and that's not the same as autism social anxiety like they're they're different things to an autistic person it sounds really stupid to say because they don't have the full understanding of the many different ways the condition impacts our lives Yeah. Could you slightly just explain to us a bit more like the difference between a linear spectrum and a, a, like what you said, a spectrum wheel in this instance? So a linear spectrum would look like the light spectrum or like a, a volume scale even. So at the one end, it's quite low. And at the top end, it's really, really loud. And the way that people misunderstand that for autism is that if you're a low volume if you're at the bottom then that means that oh you can get through your day to day and you're all right that's sound and people 
call those types of autistic people, they mislabel them as high functioning autistics, which if you were to mislabel me, that's where you'd put me. And then at the other end where the volume's really, really loud, you've got your, what people mislabel as low function autistics. And they have a higher drain on society, which again is just ridiculous because they have higher support needs in a sense that they then might use assisted technology. They might not be able to live independently. They might not be able to engage in society in the like traditional manner or the socially acceptable manner, which just isn't how autism works at all. So then you've got the spectrum wheel, which the easiest way to describe it is if you've got like a dartboard and you put someone, if when you're on the spectrum, you're in the bullseye and in all the different ways that the numbers are, are different autism traits. So for me, I have trouble with interoception, which is recognizing when I'm hungry, hot, have a headache, like if I'm ill or like, but just basically registering my bodily internal cues, that would be one of the traits. And I would be like all the way up near the 20 for that. But then if you look at another trait, which is social awareness, I guess, it doubles at the end. So I'd be like at your singles in the middle, because then that's just another trait in another direction. So that's actually more like what the autism spectrum is. It's a wheel, not a linear spectrum. Right. Is this one of the key things in neurodiversity movement or advocacy that people are really trying to educate people on that this kind of thinking of like low versus high functioning is not only incorrect but very unhelpful yeah it is one of the things we're trying to advocate for and about but the issue we're having is research language that's not always right like and if the papers that are talking about our community and our condition are still using the wrong language we're we're fighting the people who are trying to help us right yeah so yeah it's not only in like society there's an issue in the research that we're supposed to be able to use and present and use to educate people that's also wrong yeah that actually links really nicely with something I wanted to get your opinion on which is around the whole topic of Mm self-advocacy um because I know there seems to be this kind of split or sort of controversy around some charities let's talk specifically about autism where it's sort of headed or founded by people who maybe they have children who are autistic but the sort of the the founding principle behind what they're doing is like well autism is something that needs to have a cure and we are here to try to find the cure and we speak on behalf of people with autism in the same way as you're talking about research language and almost like the motivation behind some of that research perhaps this also penetrates through or trickles down into sort of charities and support network that is that spring up around it yeah it's fucked like that's honestly the only way to put it because whilst there is a space and place for non-autistic parents of autistic children to advocate and support each other and have their own communities what they're regularly doing is speaking over the voices of autistic adults and autistic people it's a mess and then you've got the case of we all need to work together and like the non-autistic parents feeling or claiming to feel targeted by non-autistic people it's like because you're trying to tell me what my life is like I'm your child in what 10 15 years time and what you're saying is hurting me so it's hurting them there's a value in the lived experience and listening to how people are now so that we can change the future and actually help those children 
And if the parents aren't willing to listen to what we have to say and think they know best because it's their child, we're never going to get anywhere. And what's annoying is because they are non-autistic, because they have the better communication, more resources, and they're higher up in whatever organisations, they're being listened to and not us. And that's where I think a lot of the frustrations lie, and especially with the bigger organisations. And if you're founded by a non-autistic, a little bit annoying, but you know what? If you're going to do good, you're going to listen to the community, and you're going to use your resources to actually move forward in the right directions, then that sounds like outcome-focused. It doesn't matter how we get there. But at the minute, the problem is like, it's not being done in a productive, helpful way. So going back to one thing, earlier you were talking about being not typical autistic person. You were sort of saying, oh, okay, that's not the best way to kind of express that. It reminds me of when we spoke previously and, and you mentioned the whole problematic side of the language surrounding all of this in and of itself. To use the term neurodiversity in place of autism in place of ADHD in place of any of the neural minority groups it's daft that's not what it means yeah like people are just using it because it's a bit of a buzzword it sounds cool it's got diversity in it let's just slap it on the smaller group and if you use it for specifically the neural minority groups you end up with this term neurotypical and that's just ableist in itself because that then says that there is a a basis like a baseline brain that everyone should have and if you don't have that then whoa what do we do with you and that's then like for the default to be a non non non-autistic brain or or like a, a brain without ADHD like that then causes further complications in the sense that when you are presented with one of them it's a challenge and it's a problem and it's like it's not it's just a signifier that they may have different way of thinking and that's what we need for the world to progress if everyone thinks the same everything's going to stay the same Yeah, I suppose I'd love to throw a question out to both of you. With words and language, you start to have tools of like framing. And actually in speaking with you and our other guests on the show, hearing the nuances behind the problematic side of this term has been really eye-opening. But there are pros to having this kind of labels, I I I would assume. Yeah, but having the right labels in circulation. So in place of the misuse of neurodiversity neuro minority because that's what we are there are fewer autistic brains like that's a that's a fact but it's not bad to have a label we definitely do need labels it, like it helps it's like when people don't want to use the word disabled why not because it clearly signifies that i have a difference and i might need help and you know that if i say the word disabled but if we say like oh i've got a superpower sorry what like <laughs> that's one of the like the most annoying questions i regularly get asked like oh what's your autistic superpower what's your non-autistic superpower like if if I can't ask the question both ways it shouldn't it's not a question that should be asked to me but to tie this into the term itself neurodiversity I agree it's a a bracket term kind of like d-a-m-e that it's supposed to bring awareness and a new framework to our understanding that there are differences and that needs to be acknowledged but it can't be a catch-all term Like, for example, when you were saying about eating porridge or your oats in the morning and that's your kind of way to start the day and it's necessary for you. For me, like it's the complete opposite. I need differences. I kind of thrive in differences Mm -hmm. with my ADHD. Like I can't for me, um, any kind of monotony is a difficulty for me if that makes sense yeah you're thriving um, like novelty exactly exactly so I could I could have oats a couple of days a week or whatever but it will quickly become stale for me 
and you know having a term that maybe lumps us together and not necessarily see our differences can be also a problem in itself but at the same time we do need a term that reframes the way that we all think differently so then I think the word that would be used for that would be neurominority. That's that's as close as we are related. The only thing that we have in common is the fact that brains like ours are in the minority in the general population. I think what's sometimes missing from the conversation about neurodiversity as well is that brains that have like bipolar or people who are experiencing depression, like their brains, On a, if you did like the brain scan thing, that looks different to a brain that's not experiencing depression at a certain period of time. Like, so that's still neurodiversity, but then the way the words being used is for conditions like ADHD, autism, dyslexia, Tourette's, like, and it's not because that's not what it technically, literally on paper, what it means. You touched upon briefly there mental health, and as we spoke about briefly, mental health does have an overlap with conditions such as ADHD and autism. Can you talk about briefly your experience and your thoughts on it? Yeah, so I've experienced, thinking back, depression since I was definitely 10, probably earlier. And it was picked up. It was it was noticed, like, it was just, but it was just a thing that I lived with. And looking back at the triggers and why it would happen, it's because of feeling connected to other people and constant changes in my routine, which was then causing me distress and then causing me to be depressed and I couldn't control my environments and things like that but the links between depression and autism if you look at some of the autistic traits and tendencies of autistic people I, c- I can't think of them off the top of my head right now which ones they specifically are but it's no wonder autistic people are regularly depressed and they're more likely to self-harm and things like that because we don't feel connected with society and connection is important so although it is a condition which in how you communicate and how socially involved you are we still do need that relationship and to feel those things and another thing that has an effect on our self-harm and like things like that is alexithymia is it alexithymia or is it another one there's another term I did a podcast on it and with the researcher who researched this and she was saying like yeah it makes sense because we have difficulty feeling and describing our emotions which then leads some autistic people to self-harm because that's how they can then feel something that's how they can then communicate and express but I do want to make clear that not all autistic people have alexithymia and it is a condition that you can have without being autistic so it's it though it's common within the autistic community it's not something you have to have to be autistic if that makes sense Yes. And that's something as well that I've been looking into with ADHD. And it's interesting because there are loads of overlaps with ADHD and autism as well. There's also many people who do have both conditions. Yeah, so it is an interesting kind of concept, this idea about connection and ways in which people connect differently to other people and the ways in which we expect people to connect. The ways that we don't really facilitate, again, inhibit people to connect to others. How does advocacy look like to you with this knowledge that there are these differences and the ways in which our society doesn't enable people with autism to thrive? How would you say that allies or people in general can better facilitate that? I think it starts with 
the people in your life who you may not necessarily know to be autistic or to be honest they might not be autistic but for people that have different communication styles so for most autistic people we have to then understand the world and then change how we communicate so that we can get our message across and function and get by but then it's a lot of one-sided work so common sense relies on a shared understanding so that's why it would appear a lot of autistic people don't have common sense but it's because we don't have the shared experience and understanding of non-autistic people like we all see the world differently as autistic people to non-autistic people who tend to all see the world the same so we're trying to get our head around your world but it's very rare to find someone who wants to actually understand your world and get their head around that so I (laughs) an example of this I was talking to my friend about an ice cube tray for a good 10 minutes and it was like halfway through it's just like Tyler you're talking about an ice cube tray and I'm like yeah but this is what I want to talk about to where some people would sit and talk about Love Island I want to tell you how good my ice cube tray is and it's only now within myself that I'm just like these are the things I talk about and like to talk about. So I'm going to do it and you're going to listen. And- <laughs> Actually great. Sorry, I just want to say, I would definitely prefer to hear your thoughts about our ice cube trays in Love Island any given day, any given day. But then that's the thing. It's also like trying to find people like that. And then like, as they're getting older as well, making friends, it's just a whole stressor. But yeah, just understanding like different communication styles. So I are then very enthusiastic about the most random things i.e. the ice cube tray. (laughs) Yeah, I found a lot of peace in the fact that I now have done a little bit more research and understand some autistic traits more and understand why people react to me in certain ways when I'm doing what I think is normal. So like the other day, I shrugged my shoulder at my friend because I literally had nothing to say, but she really didn't like that. But I had nothing to contribute to the conversation. Yeah. But so it's like in situations like that, I need to ask, well, then what would you rather me do? But she then hit me back with, I don't know. But if you're going to give me that, then I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. So if you are trying to help an autistic person or want to be an ally, this is fine line between telling them what they need to do to conform or and educating them as to why you have a problem. And I think we need a little bit of both. Yeah, yeah, I hear that. I can definitely relate to that. Even another overlap as well with ADHD, where I have, you know, things that I become very passionate about. There was a, a year, and I have to admit to it, that I was obsessed with the idea of Bigfoot. <laughs> and that, you know, you know, there is this possible humanoid that could exist in forests, you know? like and, and I was getting into the science behind it. And whenever I try and communicate, it's, God bless my brother, like, he he's here for it, you know, he... he has the capacity to listen and take in my interest but like at a very young age I would realize like my sister would be like why do you explain things so much like why do you go too inner into things and so I, I realized quite quickly on that you know you can't overdo it you know people aren't here to necessarily listen to everything you've got to say about the things you're passionate about but I think that creates the, the capacity again to be a good listener sometimes because you understand other people's passions yeah but I feel like what we're expected to do a lot as um people in the neuro minority is change our ways and like accept that oh sometimes people don't want to hear this but if I've got to sit and listen like in a board meeting about the most stupid things like why can't I talk about what I actually care about later on (laughs) there's very little give and take and I guess that's one of the perks or benefits of social media in the sense that a lot of it is one-way communication you can just tweet out there whatever you like 
And th- though in one sense, no one's listening, the people who want to hear are. I have uh, one more question for you before we wrap up. What is your experience and thoughts on the intersectionalities of being a woman with autism? I remember hearing some statistic, women are diagnosed five times less than men with autism. Um, So there is, I guess, a less awareness of how it might come through and how it appears and what that means to women who have it also intersectionality of being a a black woman as well and living in a world of which you know we have white supremacy the patriarchy and all of that what are your thoughts of navigating all of that with um, a condition like autism (laughs) a really easy question at the end (laughs) (laughs) yeah no we have a bit of an issue like this because there's so much to unpack in it so there's a problem with the diagnostic tools which is why women are diagnosed later but then Another issue we're having is gendering autism, full stop. If you like see gender as a binary, you've got your boys and your girls. Yep, girls are diagnosed later. But then what happens to those who are like not boys or girls, transgender? Like what happens then? How does autism present itself in them? So I actually even made a video on how autism presents itself in girls prior to thinking more about it. And yeah, to be fair, the traits I mentioned in that video were true. So being outspoken in a girl is a bit of a problem, but it's not then attributed to being autistic because you don't have the social awareness of when to shut up. But then in a boy, that's just seen as being boisterous. And if they do it a little bit too much, then it's like, oh, let's have a look into that. They might be autistic. Being ditzy and forgetful, that trait is, it's an autistic trait. It's a problem with your executive functioning and working memory. But then it's just like, oh, it's fun. It's cutesy. Like, haha, a bit of an airhead. But then it's like, it's an indicator of having a neurological difference. Then linking back to what I was saying before, gendering brains. I don't know how helpful that is. And I, it's something I want to look into more because is there a way we can diagnose autism without making it a boy and a girl thing? I feel like we just need to skip the step of making it known it's a girl thing because we can't have the neurodiversity movement like literally 20 years behind the rest of society on that I think people should really know where to be able to find your amazing videos and follow you online and the work that you're doing can you tell us what what would be the best ways and places to do that Instagram and YouTube is where I'm most active we tweet sometimes but they're all under autistic Tyler Tyler spelled t-y-l-a yeah that's where I am really All right, this next track is by Chicago rapper Cupcake, and the song is called Autism, and it's a great perspective on the idea of autism and tackling it into a song. So check it out. Love to hear your thoughts. (laughs) 